Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. One of the encouraging parts of Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that Jesus stands over all of history and Jesus stands among his church, his churches. He loves his churches. But what's interesting, as Jesus addresses seven different churches, which is actually seven churches in Asia at that time, but also with that can be to all Christ's churches, is he addresses them. And out of the seven churches that he addresses, five of them, or no, several of them get encouragements. Most of them get encouragements. And most of them get correction. Most of them get encouragements, and five out of seven get correction. So as we enter looking in this, these letters to the churches, we looked at one last week. Nick, Nick taught us about the church in Ephesus. Today we're looking at Smyrna and Pergamum, so we're doing two today, doubling up. But what we should assume as Risen Hope Church is that there are areas of encouragement in our church, and there are areas of correction in our church. Like we should not assume, so some of us come from backgrounds like church, we're just like drilling it all the time. And there are no encouragements. Some of us need to see encouragements. And some of us need to, like we don't love correction and like we actually need to see there's areas of correction that the Lord wants to bring through these letters. Now, Nick taught us last week that each of the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 have a similar format. The letters look kind of this way. There's an introduction. It says, to the angel at the church of blank, whatever location. There's a description of who Jesus is that points back to who Jesus said he was and who he was revealed to be in chapter 1. Then Jesus says, I know. He's talking about what he knows about the church because Jesus is among his church and he knows them. And then there's some sort of assessment or command, sometimes correction there. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then there's a promise. The one who conquers will whatever. So that's kind of the format, the framework of each of these letters. So we'll see that in both of our letters today. But what we're going to look at today as we studied Ephesus last week, we're first starting with Smyrna this week, is that this is a letter to a persecuted church, a letter to a persecuted church, this church of Smyrna. Look at Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. This is God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This letter to Smyrna is a letter to a persecuted church. Of the seven letters, as I said, two um, have no correction. I mean, sorry, two, two receive no correction, and Smyrna is one of them. Why? Well, I think when you're about to receive tribulation of this extent where it says, be faithful unto death, 
you're just going to get encouragement. You're getting ready to die. Let's just hold the correction. Jesus is a kind Savior, and let's hold off the correction and just bring encouragement. Verse 8 opens, and the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now we will note that each of the letters, the greeting is purposeful. There's an attribute of our Lord, the the messianic clarity from chapter 1 of who Jesus is. There's a purposeful situation that, uh, uh, that that church is in that points to who Jesus is and they need to know who Jesus is. So Smyrna needs to know this attribute. Smyrna needs to know that in the midst of persecution and looking death in the face, they need to know Jesus is the first and the last. He's over all circumstances and over all of history. John, like a good painter, we talked about this illustration over the last few weeks, he takes parts of the Old Testament and he paints the picture in Revelation. He, he dips his brush in Old Testament and paints. And here he's painting the, the first and the last is a reference to Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 44, where, where God is known as the first and the last. One of the interesting things in Isaiah 41 and chapter 44, when God's referred to as the first and the last, there's another phrase that both those passages pull in. Those people, the Israelites in Isaiah 41 and 44, are going through hard times. They're going through persecution. And God says, do not fear. I'm the first and the last. Do not fear, Isaiah 41. I'm the first and the last. Do not fear, Isaiah 44. I'm the first and the last, Revelation 2. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Smyrna needs to know that God stands over all history. Jesus is the first and the last, so do not fear. But they also can trust God's love and nearness because Jesus, verse 8, died and came to life. He is the one who died and he came to life. So death is not the end of the story. Smyrna needs to know that death is not the end of the story. It wasn't for Jesus and it's not going to be for the Smyrnian Christians. They need great confidence in their resurrected king, for that's their only hope. Now imagine Jesus, who's over all of history, the one like the Son of Man that the Old Testament continually points toward. He died and he came to life, and he looks these weary believers in the eyes. And he says this, verse 9, I know your tribulation. I, I know your tribulation. I'm not blind to this. I know, church, your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Tribulation and poverty. Note that tribulation is not a future event in Revelation. We are in the last days, as as commentator G.K. Beale says. He says that tribulation is the birth pangs between the resurrection and the return. We aren't going to avoid the tribulation. So some, like, Um, end times views will say, well, we want to get out of here before the tribulation comes. Guess what? It's already started. And that's what Smyrna is going through. And remember the culture where they are located. Smyrna is now modern-day Izmir, Turkey. It's a wealthy port city at the time. It was rich with industry and known for its temple worship of the emperor. That's going to be significant. 
In 26 AD, Smyrna, this beautiful port city, competed. I didn't know they had these things. They, they, he, they competed against other 11 other cities to try to like win funds or whatever to be able to get the temple that, that deified Emperor Tiberius Caesar. They won. And so they had this temple to imperial worship, this imperial cult worship. Now, why does that matter to the church in Smyrna? Well, because worshiping the emperor was part of the social and political loyalty that you held or did not hold. If you weren't willing to worship the emperor, if you weren't willing to sacrifice to the emperor, you are both persecuted and marginalized. You're not allowed in the trade guild, so it's economically penalizing to be a Christian. And Jesus says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty. True loyalty to King Jesus is shown in how we handle opposition and how we handle our finances. Is Jesus the king of our safety? Is Jesus the king of our bank accounts? The Smyrna Christians were doing well here, and Jesus is commending them because the tribulation and poverty are also not the end of the story. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are what? Rich. For this light and momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. For this is a life that is momentary. Jesus reminds this church and other churches that in our church of the fullness of riches in Christ, a future reigning with Christ in the new heavens, new earth. As uh, we saw last week with the church of Ephesus, they will be in the paradise of God. There is hope. Yes, a future glorious hope that they will experience. They are not poor they are rich in Christ, the King, who reigns over all. But right now, they need to endure. They need to endure. Look at verse 9. He says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, in the context of the Roman providence of this time period, Jews often got a pass. What I mean by that is the imp imperial worship that people had to fall under for the Romans. The Jews kind of got a pass, kind of got around that. When the Romans conquered different places, they wanted to kind of keep some of the culture, so they kept like things settled and kind of peaceful as much as possible. Um, and so they let the Jews kind of have a pass where they didn't have to worship the emperor. They were still kind of covered. There was a religious toleration. And so for years, Christians were seen as part of the Jews. And so they were kind of covered under that Jewish pass, and so they weren't as persecuted. But what happened as Christianity continued to grow, the Jews weren't loving that. So they were pushing Christians out. They were calling Christians a cult. They were saying they are not part of us. They were hanging them out to dry. Dennis Johnson says this in a culture that prized social stability and viewed new religious movements as political threats, Christians pushed out from the umbrella of established Judaism would be exposed to suspicion from neighbors and intimidation by local officials. That's Smyrna. 
That's what's going on as Jesus speaks to these believers. And note that Satan was working. This was Satan working through the Jews. Romans didn't have synagogues. So to say synagogues is Satan, he's referring to the Jews. The Jews who were claiming the line, the bloodline, the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but were not following the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And to not worship King Jesus is satanic. Now we must also note what the persecution looked like. It will end up looking like jail time and death. That's where the passage goes. But it starts out with words. Get this, friends. Satanic persecution starts with words. It starts with, verse 9, slander. Why why won't those Christians take part in our festivals? Do they not appreciate the Roman freedom and loyalty and peace that they get here? Why don't they want to take part in our businesses? Are they too good for us? Why won't they celebrate Pride Month? Are they bigots, small-minded, unloving people? Friends, let us not water down the satanic nature of slander. Slander is a satanic weapon both outside and inside the church. But what does Jesus say to this persecuted church who's experiencing satanic attack? What does Jesus say when Satan is opposing his church? Verse 10, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Friends, there's a lot to unpack here, but here's the important thing. Can your theological framework hold this passage? Can your theological framework understand this passage? Jesus, the king, saying, don't fear, you're about to go to jail. Don't fear, you're about to have tribulation, Christian. Can you handle that theologically? Because if you can't, you're not reading this Bible. You're bringing in the culture. You're bringing in what you learned as a kid. That's a watered-down gospel. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you Christians. Jesus is saying this. Some of you Christians into jail. Friends, God allows testing and trials and tribulations. God allows Satan to work attacking his people, attacking his children. Like, you'll see this throughout Revelation. This is part of the plan. Our Savior knows and shows the way of conquering is through suffering. The way of conquering is through suffering. The way of perseverance is made genuine is through struggle. And this church in Smyrna has the refining heat turned up big time. This tested genuineness of faith is exposed and seems to be proved true and pure. We must note there's 10 days referred to. It may actually be 10 days. 
It may be the apocalyptic genre of using numbers that are more like symbols to say fullness or completion. Their suffering and testing will bear the full extent. You see, the Romans would often imprison people for a short time as they awaited their punishment for opposing Caesar. So what does Jesus say to these who are imprisoned? You're going to prison. What does he say? He says, don't fear. But then what's the next part say? He says, be faithful. I like that part. Be faithful. But what does it keep saying? Be faithful unto death. Be faithful, church, unto death. Revelation 12, 11 says, and they have conquered him, talking about conquering Satan, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Friends, that's the call of the church. That's the call of the bridegroom saying, church, I'm gathering you. I'm gathering you. But the way of conquering is through suffering. Notice that victory, the the conquering for believers is not laying claim on this life. It's not winning with earthly success and lots of wealth and long life. No, it is faithfulness in the hard and broken circumstances that God allows us to go through. Tim Chester says it this way, living, uh, sorry, being victorious for the Smyrnians does not mean escaping persecution, but being faithful through suffering persecution. They will overcome by dying, but that faithful death leads to eternal life. Be faithful unto death, Jesus says, and I will give you the crown of life. This is Jesus, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life, he will give the crown of life to those who are faithful unto death. Death is not the end of the story. And notice Jesus' intimate knowledge and detail and love for this church. Smyrna is known for their athletic games. The winner of the athletic games would would receive a victor's crown. They all knew that they would see people working out ready. They, they want to go to an Olympic-like event and win the crown. What do you want to win? You want to win the crown. And what does Jesus say? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown. The crown of life. The victor's crown from the one wearing the royal crown, King Jesus. You will reign with him. Well done, Smyrna. Verse 11, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Don't worry, Smyrna, about the first death. Everybody gets that. Worry about the second death. And to those who conquer, those who know Christ, those who walk forward and they are in Christ, they do not have to worry about eternity separated from God, separated and and wrath coming upon them. There was a man named Polycarp that many think was the guy who received this and read it to Smyrna. Like he had this letter. He's addressing the church in Smyrna for the first time and reading it to them. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. That started in 115 A.D., 
He was a faithful man all the way to the end. And when Polycarp was an old man, he was arrested. He was told to renounce Christ. He's old, he's arrested, he's told to renounce Christ. And here's what Polycarp says. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Eighty-six years old, bold, ferocious for King Jesus. I mean, if, if you're burning an 86-year-old man, like there's got to be a reason. Like you're kind of scared of him. That's what I want to be when I'm 86. Like, yeah! What's interesting is Polycarp was supposed to be burned at the stake, but the fire would not burn him. It would not catch him, so they end up spearing him to death because the fire would not light. At 86 years old, he was faithful unto death. Friends, the Smyrnian church looks at us and says, are you, American church, going to be faithful? American church, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to compromise when life gets hard? Are you going to compromise when you experience slander? Are you going to compromise when there's satanic attack? Be faithful unto death. What do we do with this passage in Revelation 2? Well, I, think, I think first we hold on to this passage when persecution comes. It may be smaller now. Some of you guys have experienced it. Some of you will experience it. We may just be in that slander stage right now. We see slander all the time. But it may grow. We must be faithful as we are marginalized. We must be faithful to the Lord. But secondly, we must grow in our heart for those who right now need this comforting message. For there are many brothers and sisters around the world who this is the church they identify with the most. Like they're like, oh, I know that. I, I know that jail time. I know that government coming down on me and the whispers where they have to enter their house church in intervals because they all can't go at the same time, or they'll, they'll, they'll stir eyes that see and hands that say, hey, I think something's going on. So every 15 minutes they enter the house, and so it takes two hours to get people together before they actually can talk about Jesus together. They have to sing quietly together because the neighbors are going to hear Countries like North Korea and Somalia and Yemen and Libya and Nigeria and Pakistan and Iran and Afghanistan and Sudan. Those are the top countries right now. The top countries where you die for being a Christian. May they be faithful unto death. May we be those who send and support missionaries to the hardest places. And as God stirs our hearts May we send our best to the nations to bring the gospel to places where it's hard. Friends, the easy places are already sent. They're already reached. There's a reason places are called unreached, because they're the hardest places. 
May we be those who send well. But as I said, the Smyrnian church is a bit unique. They receive commendation and no correction. But the next church we're going to look at today is what I would call the polluted church. It's, I don't think, as unique. I think this is fairly common and can speak to us. Let's look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Friends, when I'm doing sermon prep, I'm often like just spending time in the text, like lots of time in the text. And when I'm writing and just kind of spending time there, I try to not consult commentaries for a while. But there are moments that's like I write in my notes, commentary help, and I highlight it in green. Commentary help, highlight it in green. This one had a lot of green. I was like, what, what hidden manna, white stunt, like what throne of Satan, like what are we talking about? What's going on here? So hopefully I can help us by scholars who helped me with some confusing passages or verses in this. The opening starts with this, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus, we see in chapter 1, has the powerful cutting words that we refer to Hebrews chapter 4, where it speaks of God's word that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word convicts, and Jesus, the word made flesh, convicts these people. Pergamum, remember, each church has a specific part of Jesus that they need to hear, and this is what Pergamum needed. Pergamum needs the scalpel of God's word to cut away cancer that is polluting their soul. But before we get to the correction, Jesus gives some really good encouragement. This is why I say polluted church and not corrupt or debased church. All is not bad. There are some really good things going on in Pergamum. So let's talk about the encouragements. First off, Pergamum is no easy place to live. Like, let's have a little compassion. This is not an easy place to live. There's no other church where it says, hey, where your city is, that's where the throne of Satan is. Like, oh my gosh, like that sounds a little difficult to be a Christian there. Later he says, that's where Satan dwells. So any amount of church that's doing any amount of like good stuff is like, yeah, good job. <coughs> this is like a church plant in downtown Vegas. 
You're like, good job, man. That's really, whew. good job, church. Commentators speculate that the reason Jesus is saying Satan is in Pergamum is that imperial, imperial or emperor worship actually started in Pergamum. So we're going to see throughout the letters of these churches in Asia, this is going on in almost every city. The, the, the trials and temptations of not bowing to the emperor, like that's part of the culture. But Pergamum was where it started, and Pergamum was often called the temple warden. Like they're the ones who make up the rules and hold the rules on how temple worship is to be done. So you've got to think it's a pretty strict place in how you execute temple worship to the emperor. They're saying the emperor is a god. You better sacrifice to him and you better bow to him. They also had a massive altar to Zeus in the city. So it was not just worshiping the emperor. It was uh, more worship than we can probably even comprehend. And friends, we got to note that Jesus took false worship seriously. Again, he says it's satanic to not worship him as king. Jesus says that though you are where Satan dwells, verse 13, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. That's commendation to this church. There are many in the church who have been faithful. They've held the name of Jesus in the midst of what we will find is both persecution and seduction. It says that you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So they know a guy who was with them, Antipas. He's the first martyr in Asia. He's the witness like Jesus was a martyr, a witness. It's the same word in the original language. Antipas is as well. And tradition says that Antipas was ordained by the apostle John the writer of Revelation. He was murdered by Nero for casting out demons of people who were worshiping at pagan altars. So I can't imagine what that's like. They're worshiping at a pagan altar. You know, he comes up, prays over him. I'm not sure. And it's like causing a scene. So there's a commendation for faithfulness to this church family in the midst of persecution and seduction that's coming at them. Many held fast. But the letter goes on because there's some correction for this polluted church. For though they held fast when there was external opposition, they have now been silent in the midst of internal seduction. Hear, hear me on this. They held fast when there was external opposition coming at them. But now they've been silent in the midst of internal seduction. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Remember, we've talked about how 
John and Jesus, they do the painter's palette with the Old Testament. If we don't know our Old Testament, it's going to be really hard to understand different parts of Revelation. In Numbers chapter 22 through 24, we find this guy Balaam. He's a false prophet. He's hired by Balak, the king of Moab, and he's hired to curse Israel. And it's kind of a funny little scene. He's trying to curse Israel, but God's in control, and he can't curse Israel. Every time he tries to curse Israel, he blesses Israel instead. He's like, oh, God's in charge of words, right? He blesses Israel. But instead of, he figures out, like, there's got to be another way to get at Israel. How does he get at Israel? Well, he advises the Moabite women to seduce Israelite men into sexual sin and idolatry. That's the way. Greg Beale notes, Balaam's name became the biblical catchword for false teachers who, for financial gain, sought to influence God's people to engage in ungodly practices. As a result of Balaam's seduction and Israel's compromise and sexual sin, there's a plague that's sent. Over 20,000 Israelites die in one day. And friends, this marked God's people. We saw in our Joshua series uh, a few weeks ago that at the end of Joshua, there's this moment where the two and a half tribes are going back home, basically, and they build an altar. And like the nine and a half tribes see that altar and it says, we're going to make war against them. Like, it's like, whoa, that escalated very quickly. Why? They're like, well, there's false worship over there. And what do they refer to? Balaam at Peor. This moment, Balaam. They are marked by this moment where God wipes out people because of idolatry and sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about their idolatry, you know what he talks about? Balaam. This is like the marking point of your sexual sin and idolatry. You got to know it. And Jesus is referring to this church in Pergamum and saying, guys, you're doing it again. You're doing it again. This is how Satan worked in the Old Testament. This is how Satan worked in the first century. And friends, this is how Satan works now. Get this. If bold persecution does not work, then flank them with seduction. If bold persecution doesn't work when you come at Christ church, take the back door of seduction. That's how it worked thousands of years ago, and that's how it works today. Jesus says the stumbling block of idolatry and sexual sin is happening in Pergamum. They are not holding fast to Jesus. They're holding fast to the teaching of Balaam, and they're allowing sin in their midst and remaining silent. That's what's happening. They're allowing sin in their midst, and there are many who are not sinning. There are many who are not sinning in the sense of like actively committing idolatry or actively committing sexual sin, but they are remaining silent. Greg Beale thinks that some of them might be just worn out. Just imagine this. They've experienced persecution. We know that Antipas died. Like they've, they've experienced waves of persecution. This church has, has endured. They've been faithful, and, and they've endured. He said, they held fast my name. But then the back door comes, the seduction. They're like, oh, man, not another fight. 
not another fight. And maybe it's not that bad. Maybe we can just like kind of sweep that under the rug and it goes away. And Jesus is saying, no, this isn't going away. You must say something. It reminds me of 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19 where Elijah, so like one of the best scenes uh, with Elijah and like God's power is he builds these altars and he's going against Baal. It's like there's like epic music you got to think going on. Someone's playing their iPod. I don't know. Um, but like there's, there's this amazing time and fire comes from heaven. First Kings 18. Elijah's just getting God's work done. Boom, fire from heaven. It's crazy. Very next chapter, Elijah's running for his life. He's scared, he's depressed, he's struggling. Friends, there are times that we can fight hard and fight hard as believers, and we start getting worn down. And then the next wave comes. It may not look like persecution. This time it may look like seduction. It's seduced toward materialism or seduced sexually or seduced toward idolatry or seduced toward gluttony or seduced toward addiction or whatever it is. And well, that doesn't seem as bad as this bold attack. And so we just open the door. Slowly, small compromises, letting those things in. And when we see that in other people, other believers, other people in the household of God, we are silent. We say nothing. Red flags come in community group or in conversations with people, and we say nothing. What was their sin? What was the sin of the church of, of Pergamum? Commentator Beale, G.K. Beale, says this, it is the sin of tolerance. We live in a land that holds up tolerance as a flag and says this is the best. Beale says it's the sin of tolerance allowing evil among them. There is an infection that is not being tended to. There is cancer growing in their body, and they're just hoping it goes away. They are being seduced to sexual sin and idolatry, and they are okay with some holding the Nicolaitan teaching, which most likely was saying, it's okay to offer, make sacrificial offerings to the emperor, to take take part in idolatry. It's, it's okay. It's just, it's just part of the culture. It's not that big a deal. We don't want to ruffle other people's feathers. We're, we might bring another wave of persecution. We don't want to deal with that again. You see, the culture was informing the church more than the church transforming the culture. Friends, idolatry and sexual sin are evil, and they distort. They distort the good gifts of God. They twist truth into a lie. Idolatry claims, makes the claim that worshiping created things like an emperor is good, wise, beautiful, and true. And it may be worshiping an emperor, or it may be worshiping a political candidate like in our country. It is worshiping creation rather than the creator. That's idolatry. And then sexual sin also distorts. Sexual sin distorts God's good gift of sexual intimacy between a husband and his bride and makes it an act of lust and selfishness and greed and pride and vulgarity. Sin always twists and sin always harms. And there are those in Pergamum who are not taking part 
in the idolatry, not taking part in the sexual sin, but they're looking the other way. They're not honoring King Jesus who walks among his churches and deeply cares about the purity of his church. They aren't being obedient by exercising church discipline through appealing to brothers and sisters in Christ to repent. That's the way you show love biblically. You call people away from sin that will kill them and to be reconciled to God. Friends, we must note before going further that we are all capable of this. We are all capable of idolatry. We are all capable of sexual sin. And we are all capable of remaining silent. When the Bible tells us to speak up, to warn, to love others enough to say something. So what is this polluted church to do? They are polluted with idolatry, sexual immorality. What are they to do as Jesus stands among his church? What's Pergamum to do? Verse 16, therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. That's the answer. It's not a hard concept in theory. Repentance is a U-turn, turning away from sin, turning to Christ. But it is really hard when your heart longs for sin. When the hook has been set, the seduction of the world, the flesh, and the devil are there. You have to want to turn from sin. You have to have a greater satisfaction in Christ who walks among his churches than what you think that sin can achieve for you. We don't usually sin because we hate it, especially seductive sin. But Jesus makes clear the seriousness. Verse 16, therefore repent, get this, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. When Balaam is confronted, it's an angel with a sword who confronts him. The sword's in his hand. Now Jesus comes and confronts the Pergamum church with the sword of his mouth. The two-edged saber, the sharp word, the slicing word, that will expose the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus knows our thoughts, and Jesus knows our intentions, and Jesus will not be mocked. He knows our loyalties. And we must note, church family, that Jesus will war against his disloyal church. He will war against his disloyal church his sexually immoral believers, his idolatrous church, his silent Christians who will not confront impurity in themselves and in others. This is super sobering. Jesus among his churches, making eye contact. And the call is not for individual repentance, though that's there. The call is for corporate repentance. The call is for elders and deacons and ministry leaders and men and women and children who have actively sinned by accepting the Nicolaitan error or practicing idolatry or practicing sexual sin and those who have said nothing about it. They're all to repent. Repent. Turn. Confess. Fall on your face. Fall at the feet of Jesus. But friends, let's know you never stop with repentance. Repentance. You don't just repent. That's not the end. 
It's never just stopping with repentance. Repentance is not the end of the story either. Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Warning and promise. Because the text keeps going. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one is, sorry, no one knows except the one who receives it. So there's three promised gifts. And as you're reading the text, you probably are like me the first time I read it. And like, I don't even know what these gifts are. Maybe they're good. Hope so. Hidden manna, white stone, new name. Jesus among his churches knows what his churches need. And specifically this church in Pergamum, they need the hidden manna. Most likely the hidden manna is speaking of God's provision. They live in the wilderness of the last days where Satan's throne is. They need God's care. They need the continual sustenance of the bread of life as waves of persecution came and now the wave of seduction comes and the temptation to silence is there. They need to know of the future welcoming meal of the wedding feast of the Lamb. They need to eat of the bread of life rather than the meat offered to idols. They need Jesus more than satanic lust. They need the hidden manna of God's provision. They also need the white stone. White stones at this time were given in court. When someone was not guilty, they'd be given a white stone that says, I'm innocent, not guilty. A white stone was also given uh, for, to the winner of an athletic competition. So, you, you know, we saw in Smyrna, you get a crown. You also get a white stone saying, I won. But that winning stone wasn't just that stone as like, yay, I get it, I'll put it on my mantle. It was a ticket into the festival, the celebration, the gathering saying, enter in. Now get this. You get the white stone that is both the victory and the purity, the not guilty, and you're welcomed into the festival or the feast. That's what the believers get. They get the white stone of the purity saying not guilty. And they get a new name of who they are. The new name of those who held fast my name, verse 13 says. Some commentators think the church at Philadelphia kind of gets the same gift, but it's expanded. Look at 3.12, Revelation 3.12. It says, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my, talking about Christ's new name. So they get this name of Jesus upon them, this ownership, and it just reminds me of the, I will be your God and you will be my people. So what do they get? They get provision from God. He's satisfying more than the lusts of this world. Go to church in Pergamum and ask the Lord, where are we at Risen Hope Church polluted? Where is there idolatry that the Lord wants to expose and that we need to repent of? Where is there sexual immorality and lust and seduction? Where, friends, are we looking at pornography where are we streaming immorality? Where are we being entertained by lust? Where are we lingering on thoughts of a coworker or a neighbor, someone who's not our spouse? Where are we given to flirtatious comments? Where are we playing with fire with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Friends, sexual sin is a specific point of attack of Christ's church in America right now. 
Satanic attack is coming at you in this way, not through the front door, through the back door. Every day, knocking at that door. And we are idiots if we don't take this seriously. And let's not be self-righteous and think it's the other person sitting in the row in front of you or behind you. No, it's coming at you. And friends, we must repent because we do not want Jesus to war against Risen Hope Church. We don't. And he says he will if we don't repent. Let's be a repentant church. Our text today shows that satanic attack looks different in different cities. In Smyrna, it's persecution. In Pergamum, it's seduction. In China right now, it's persecution. In the United States, it's seduction. But what are both churches called to? See it in both texts. They're called to faithfulness. They're called to faithfulness. They're called to faithfulness. Friends, let us be a faithful church. Let's pray. Robbie, you can come on up.